the Chinese state has been very reluctant to move to a coercive model of vaccination. And to me, that's something that I've seen in sources going back to the early PRC, um, this effort to really avoid coercion and focus instead on persuasion uh, when it comes to vaccination. Uh, and you see that today with all kinds of incentivizations that are being promoted at the moment, particularly to get the elderly, that key vulnerable population I mentioned, uh, vaccinated. Why can't China, which in the Republican and early Mao eras actually achieved fantastic vaccination rates, get its citizens vaccinated for COVID today? To discuss, we have on today Mary Brazelton, Cambridge professor and author of the 2019 book, Mass Vaccination, Citizens' Bodies and State Power in Modern China. Co-hosting today is Henry Lee, policy lead at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Welcome to China Talk, everyone. Mary, could you provide some context on China's current COVID-19 vaccine coverage? What are the key vulnerabilities in the current coverage and what are the implications? So China was among the first nations in the world to start testing and trialing a domestic vaccine against COVID-19 uh, with approval in uh, summer 2020 and starting rollout over the winter of 2020-2021. And the result has been a uh, pretty high rate of vaccination against COVID-19, as reported in news media. The question is, though, what exactly does it mean to talk about vaccination rates? Uh, often, uh, these are broken down into number of doses given. So, for example, the number that's currently floating around is about 3.5 billion doses given in China against COVID-19. Um, and if you're estimating two doses uh, per person being vaccinated, that's 122% of the population. If you account for boosters, however, then things start to look a little bit fuzzier. Um, that said, uh, vaccination rates are esti estimated to be pretty high. Some figures are being thrown out that suggest that as much as 90% of the population is fully vaccinated. That sounds great, but there are two key issues with uh, whatever figure you're choosing to run with, uh, namely the distribution of those doses by age, and then the particular kind of vaccine that's used. So first, uh, the distribution of doses uh, gives a hint of a possible key vulnerability in vaccine coverage. Um, there are different ways to think about distribution of vaccinations. Geographically, they've mostly gone to the bigger cities, as you might expect. Um, but the bigger issue is age. So as of last month, uh, the estimates that I saw were that only about 60% of people age 60 and above, so that's 100 million people, um, have received a booster shot, which is great. But there are actually less than 20% of those aged 80 and above who are thought to have gotten a booster. It's pretty well established by now that the older you are, the more vulnerable you are to the worst symptoms and complications of COVID-19. So the implication of all of that is that the most vulnerable population in China, COVID-wise, is also possibly the least protected against infection. So, for instance, if uh, people in China wanted to move away from the current zero-COVID policy, that would be possibly risky for the lives of the oldest citizens. And the experience of Hong Kong here may be particularly instructive. In the spring, Hong Kong had one of the highest uh, daily death rates from the virus for a while. Um, and most of the people who died were unvaccinated older people. Um, so I think around 65% of over 80s in Hong Kong hadn't been uh, jabbed when the Omicron wave uh, got underway. Uh, and so that provides a pretty uh, forceful cautionary tale. So that's distribution uh, of vaccines by age and some of the issues that that throws up. 
The second issue is the nature of well, vaccines. Well, let's 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 do one. Let's do one at a time. So like the classic, like, I don't know anything about China. I'm very confused. Twitter take is like, I thought this government was all powerful. Why can't they find all the 80 year olds and put something in their arms? Um, what are the sort of uh, what are the what are what are some of the dynamics stopping that from uh, th- that stopped that from happening over the past few years? Yeah, so I think it's less a question of state capacity and more one of state prioritization. But there is also an important question, I think, of persuasion versus coercion in getting people vaccinated. So first, prioritization. Uh, In general, with the domestic vaccine rollouts in China that we saw, the people who are prioritized to get vaccines first were pretty sensibly the people who were um, younger and going around in society more. Um, So to give some anecdotal examples, um, the friends I have who are university professors were um, getting vaccinated earlier than I was here in the UK. Um, and that was understood to be in part because they were expected to be teaching, hopefully going back uh, to classrooms as soon as possible. Um, and so there was a logic that those who are involved in uh, key occupations, occupations that involve a lot of social contact, those should be the ones to uh, get vaccines earlier than others. So that's one issue around prioritization. Um, But there is also a serious question, I think, around um, vaccine hesitancy, one might call it, or resistance to getting a vaccine, or indifference to getting uh, vaccines. And this is something that's also been reported on, um, the idea that older people are a bit more reluctant, perhaps, to go and line up and get a vaccine. Um, They offer a variety of reasons, um, ranging from, as I say, indifference, that I've gotten this far and it's not really necessary, um, to uh, hesitance um, that it's uh, possibly unsafe to get a COVID vaccine. Um, and there are lots of reasons that we could drill down into for that kind of hesitancy. Um, but I think those are that's an overview of some of the reasons why older people have been vaccinated so far at lower rates. Sure. Let's talk about let's talk about vaccine hesitancy. What is it? Um, you know, what's what's lurking underneath that? There are a couple of reasons for contemporary hesitancy around the COVID-19 vaccination in China. Um, and some of those reasons have to do with age, but some of those, I think, uh, have to do with much broader kind of attitudes and approaches. But basically, there are historical reasons why we might, and when I say historical, I mean recent historical reasons as to why we might see vaccine hesitancy in broad swaths of of the Chinese population today, there are also COVID-specific reasons for hesitancy around vaccines. So the recent past um, has not exactly uh, made a lot of people really confident in uh, Chinese vaccine uh, distribution networks. Uh, And I'm thinking here uh, of a particular issue in 2018 around Changshan Biotech. I don't know if this is ringing any bells, um, but as part of a series, I think, of news stories, scandals that occurred over the early 21st century, one of the things that kind of got caught up in questions and concerns about safety of food and drugs in China was that of vaccines. Um, so the case of Changshan is illuminative here. Um, in July 2018, this firm uh, was found to have fabricated production and inspection records for its rabies vaccines. It was further found to have given ineffective vaccines to children uh, in China. So this was a um, company that was basically not looking after the cold chain 
that allows vaccines to maintain their efficacy. And as a result, it was basically giving expired vaccines or ineffective vaccines to kids. And it doesn't seem necessarily that it caused a huge number of mortalities. Um, it meant, though, that the vaccines that were being given were not considered to be valid. And so this sparked an investigation into vaccine producers nationwide. Um, Fifteen people were detained. Uh, six officials were sacked. But I think one of the upshots of that, particularly because of the widespread media coverage, was the message that the vaccines that you trust uh, to be given to your kids aren't necessarily always going to be um, protected and uh, delivered in a way that is the safest. Um, so that was kind of an issue, I think, that that caused a lot of concern and hesitancy down the roads. But at the same time, there are issues that have come up with particular um, relevance for COVID-19 vaccination. Um, and a lot of that, I think, has to do with news stories and coverage around the development of the first COVID vaccines, particularly the vaccines uh, overseas for Chinese that ter have turned out to be some of the more effective uh, immunizations. So, for example, when the mRNA vaccines that we uh, know, like the Pfizer um, and the Moderna vaccines were being developed, uh, there were a number of uh, news stories uh, in circulating in China. Um, around concerns about the safety of those vaccines. Um, so somebody got quoted at one point uh, who was, um, I think, uh, relatively high up in health administration saying, well, mRNA vaccines were developed for cancer patients. They've never been given to healthy patients. There are some concerns here. We're not sure how that's going to work out. And those kinds of statements, it's thought, have really increased hesitancy around COVID vaccination more generally, even the ones that aren't mRNA vaccines. Um, and so that's also been something that's been coupled with state uh, proclamations about the um, European and American COVID vaccines possibly being less desirable. Um, I'm curious, Mary, like how much you think the sort of conspiracy, like the government sponsored conspiracy mongering about around like America creating the virus ties in at all to the. Um, to sort of concerns and hesitancy that has filtered up through the system about uh, approving foreign mRNA vaccines. Yeah, I mean, I think it's striking how um, quickly those rumors started circulating, this concern about the virus um, and where it emerged and how its uh, emergence could have been uh, somehow unnatural in some way. I mean, to me, it was actually very reminiscent of some of the rhetoric that I saw around an event that happened much earlier in Chinese history in 1952. I don't know if you've come across the story of the uh, bacteriological warfare allegations in the Korean conflict. In early 1952, Chinese and North Korean news media start reporting that in the theater of war in Northern Korea, but then also in Northeast China, strange bombs have been discovered, the remnants of bombs dropped by American planes uh, that it's thought were germ bombs that contained spiders or um, material of various kinds that was full of cholera germs or typhoid germs or other kinds of pathogenic materials. And so the story that started emerging that was circulating was one of American bacteriological warfare. Um, this played on uh, the trauma of the Second World War and Unit 731 and Japanese biological warfare um, in uh, Northeast China and other places. Uh, but 
those allegations gathered strength with global circulation through socialist international networks. Um, there's a Cambridge connection to all of this insofar as an international scientific commission was set up um, that brought foreign experts to uh, Northeast China and Northern Korea to investigate the allegations. Most of the people on that commission were what we call fellow travelers, people with significant uh, sympathies for the communist cause, uh, allies of China, friends of China in different ways. Joseph Needham, an embryologist and sinologist here in Cambridge, uh, was on that commission. And, and wasn't he like the only one who was like, wasn't there like one person who like didn't believe it and everyone else was like, shut up? Like, the, of course, the Americans are to blame. Yeah. I mean, if you look at his diaries uh, from that commission, which I have, it's really fascinating to see him kind of struggle through trying to figure out ways in which these allegations could be plausible could be scientifically possible. <laughs> and yet, if you look at the 600-page report that this commission published, which he typed up, as I have, then you really kind of start to see some holes. And I mean, I should say that there's still controversy over those allegations today. So there's still questions around whether or not they're true. Um, it's, a, it's a long, complicated story that probably we don't have the time to get into. But I think looking at that diary, you really see this kind of way in which Needham is really struggling with it. And at one point in a letter to his wife, he actually says, you know, sometimes I feel like I've been dreaming this whole summer. It's impossible to know if what I'm seeing with my eyes is really what I'm seeing, which I think is quite, uh, quite revealing in many ways. All right. So so getting back on the thread in the book that you you argue this kind of allegation ended up twisting into a sort of like like nationalist, like let's get vaccinated to like screw the Americans um, and, you know, protect ourselves against um, against a biological warfare sort of impetus. Um, it, that hasn't been in the rhetoric at all, really, I don't think, um, over the past few years, has it? Well, there have been some interesting ways in which the idea of a Chinese domestic vaccine, I think, um, has been very powerful. Uh, right. And I think this might play into perhaps one reason why uh, the BioNTech vaccine still hasn't been approved, as far as I know, um, even though there have been contracts set up with full soon uh, pharmaceuticals in Shanghai to actually produce uh, the BioNTech vaccine in China. Um, approval hasn't yet been given. At the same time, a Chinese mRNA vaccine is in development and it's thought to be quite close to uh, being ready to go into production. Um, but I think that there has been some rhetoric around this idea of having a domestically produced Chinese COVID vaccine um, that can serve as the basis for medical diplomacy. And one thinks of uh, the ways in which we've seen medical diplomacy um, in all kinds of ways over the past few uh, months and years. Let, let, let's stay on the like not approving the foreign vaccine, which like saved tens of millions of lives thing. Because that might be the most puzzling part of this whole story. Um, I don't. I don't know, Henry, where you want to take that question, or yeah. So uh, it's very interesting because uh, on on the one hand, it's very important that there is a Chinese domestic vaccine and it's serving an important role in controlling COVID uh, overseas. At the same time, it's also uh, Part of the trend that China has been working with, uh, quote unquote, the, the West to import very crucial medical technologies into China over different points of time in history. 
But then what we are seeing with vaccine is very interesting because there are, there are two contrasting examples with the Pfizer antiviral drug Paxlovid. China approved it relatively quickly after the drug came onto the market, whereas uh, Fosun Pharma has been trying to Im import the this uh, pfizer Bantech vaccine into China, but it's been hitting some roadblocks. Uh, could you maybe help us understand a little bit why there is such different reactions and attitudes to um, these two different types of products? What's so special about vaccine here? Yeah, well, I think it has to do with the question of therapy versus prevention, right? If you have a zero COVID policy, that means that in theory, most of the population is not getting exposed to COVID and therefore has no reason to take Paxlovid, then it's probably mm. a lot less controversial to approve it because the argument is, well, we're not going to be needing it in such great amounts. With a vaccine, though, it's already been a politicized question for some time. And so there's a way in which I think it's about prevention and kind of this question of, well, at what point does one move to a major, uh, very well-publicized vaccine rollout? And what does that say about the zero COVID policy? Um, but getting back to the question of um, whether or not we import or kind of set up a way to produce Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines through Fosun, or whether we develop that question, I think, around giving the permission for this collaboration with Pfizer-BioNTech, it becomes much more complicated when there's a viable alternative for policymakers on the horizon. And that viable alternative, I think, probably is a domestic mRNA vaccine. But it's like two years and counting, right, from when they could have had this, which is, you know, a remarkable, you know, okay, sure, like, let's support domestic industry or whatever. And yeah, it's a nice, it's like, it, it's kind of like, not super national pridey if you're two years late anymore, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it was fascinating for me to watch the decision making around um, what method to use to make uh, vaccines early on in the pandemic response, right? Um, because I think at the point that a lot of investments were made in the Sinopharm and the Coronavac uh, vaccines um, that we see the Chinese state going with, that was a pretty reasonable and rational decision at the time. Yeah. Um, I think it's been kind of amazing how well the mRNA vaccines have performed. And yet that wasn't something that I think uh, could have been rationally expected at the time. Um, oh, that's interesting. So, so, the, so the mental model instead is like, America um, I, and the UK were like very aggressive and in leaning into these new technologies, whereas China was being more conservative. And then so like you can only really, you know, blame them for not recognizing that the mRNAs were better and starting to let them in as opposed to, you know, investing really heavily in mRNA, um, you know, in, in early mid 2020. Well, I think it's even more complicated than that. If you look at, for example, the UK strategy, up until relatively recently, the UK was not necessarily using mRNA vaccines in its greatest numbers. It was using adenovirus vector vaccines. Um, so this is where it gets a little bit technical. There are three different types of vaccines that we're seeing uh, currently. Uh, the mRNA vaccines are in many ways the success story, right? They're the ones that um, have had the most uh, effectiveness, it seems, in controlling uh, COVID-19 transmission and poor outcomes. That's great. They have pretty significant infrastructural requirements, right? So you have to uh, really look after your cold chain when it comes to those mRNA vaccines. 
Um, you know, in the U.S., some pharmacies were actually consulting like Dippin' Dots and other ice cream manufacturers to learn how to deal with the cold chain requirements because the, these vaccines require incredibly low temperatures. It's not technology that your average CPS is going to have access to. Um, and so there's a whole host of complications around the infrastructure required to not only make these vaccines, but then transport them um, and distribute them. Uh, that meant that for a lot of governments, including the UK early on, it wasn't necessarily clear that that was going to be the best thing to invest in for population-wide vaccination. Enter adenovirus vector vaccines. So I'm talking about things like the AstraZeneca vaccine, also called the Oxford vaccine in the UK. That was the mainstay, the workhorse of the UK's vaccination program in the early months. Uh, so mRNA vaccines and adenovirus vector vaccines or viral vector vaccines, as they're sometimes also called, they both target something called the spike protein in the virus. So this is the protein that the virus is using to enter uh, the body's cells and continue the chain of infection. So it's a pretty targeted mechanism that both of these vaccines use um, to go after COVID-19 infections. By contrast, the third method of vaccine production and the one that both of the major Chinese vaccines use um, is inactivated virus. Uh, and so what that means is that this is a very tried and true method of vaccine manufacture. You basically take a sample of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and you inactivate it. We don't always say kill because there's a question of whether or not viruses are actually alive. So you inactivate the virus. Um, and you can do this chemically, you can do it with heat, I think, in some cases, but whatever the method, you then take that inactivated virus and use that to train the body's immune system um, to uh, fight COVID-19. And so those are the three different methods, the mRNA, uh, the viral vector, and the inactivated uh, viral vaccine. Um, and China went for the third method, which is, again, totally understandable, but it seems to be less effective uh, than the other two methods. Um, and I should say that none of these methods are sterilizing, right? So the MMR vaccine, for example, I believe is sterilizing. That means um, it's not only reducing your risk of getting something like measles, mumps, and rubella, it's also preventing transmission uh, on um, of, the, of the disease. So there are ways in which none of these vaccines are what we might consider to be absolutely perfect, and yet they're really good. Um, and yet some are better than others, it would seem at this point, given the evidence that we have. Um, and that's been a serious consideration, I think. Um, certainly, it's causing pretty major issues if you're thinking about, for instance, moving on from a zero COVID policy, um, what vaccine you choose to facilitate um, that process is a pretty important one, I think. Mary, I'm curious for other sort of historical examples of the PRC being really stubborn um, when it comes to kind of uh, sort of nationwide medical decisions. Mm -hmm. What what comes to mind? Well, I think there are two examples that come to mind, and both of them draw on work by colleagues of mine. Um, so one is uh, the Eltor cholera outbreak in the 1970s in China, and this is something that my colleague, Fan uh, Xiaoping, uh, has done some work on. Um, he's looked at kind of ways in which that responses to that cholera outbreak really 
stressed the need to significantly control information, uh, even going to the lengths of having epidemic response teams only refer to cholera and code. Um, I think it was called disease number 10 um, in communications, for example. There was also a strong emphasis on surveillance of diseases, of blaming infection and introduction of infections on immigrants. At the time, there were, I believe, um, migrants coming in from Indonesia as part of various um, programs. So with the El Tor cholera outbreak, you maybe see examples of commitment to a particular way of epidemic response um, that involves strategies that might seem familiar to us now. Um, state surveillance, concerns to control information, um, things like that. Um, that said, a lot has happened since the 1970s in China. And so I think we've got to be careful about the degree to which we see historical connections over, over those decades. And so the other case that I think is probably a bit more relevant, um, and if we're thinking about ideas of, of stubbornness, um, it's actually not so much stubbornness. It's about attempting to change efforts to change that then um, cause problems, if this makes any sense. So I'm thinking of Catherine Mason's work on Chinese epidemiology after SARS, looking at the period from around 2003 to 2010 and her ethnographic work following CDC, Chinese CDC staff uh, during that period. So I think probably most people assume that the first SARS COVID virus um, that that the world experienced in 2003 was it would seem natural that that would be important and influential on Chinese strategies of public health for COVID-19. But I think the thing that Catherine Mason's work really speaks to is the fact that China was already in the middle of moving to a new model for epidemiology when SARS broke out in 2003, of moving to a CDC American model of epidemiology. So that epidemic breaking out really gave a ton of momentum to reforms in epidemiology that were already underway. And the result was a really beefed up epidemic response strategy that took really seriously the need to isolate infected cases in a new pandemic, exert rigorous quarantines. And so we see that model emerging. We see it being tested for the first time in 2009 when swine flu breaks out. Uh, and that leads to unintended consequences as far as uh, Chinese epidemiology is concerned, uh, because their implementation of those methods doesn't lead to praise from the international community of global health. It doesn't lead to full acceptance in that community of global health as modern, uh, competent uh, experts. Instead, China simply comes under fire for overreacting. Um, yeah. in the case of Swine Zoo. And I think that's a lesson as well. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting thinking back to the SARS and, and swine flu um, responses because you do get a sense um, at least, you know, two, three years on where there's an aspect of fighting the last war. 
um, when it comes to the COVID response. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the fact that Chinese epidemiology was reformed and deployed to such an extent in that pandemic and then ultimately criticized, that was really kind of interesting and I think difficult for a lot of people working in public health uh, to experience. And I mean, Mason's informants took away two lessons from SARS. First, that they should um, act with professionalism, with scientifically informed uh, approaches on the one hand, but also that they should uh, really buy into authoritarian mobilization. Yet ultimately, the result was that they felt in some ways betrayed, especially by the international community that they were attempting to um, be a part of. And I think with COVID, one of the interesting things is the way in which we maybe see greater support for the methods. The point you were mentioning, Mary, about how um, vaccination, uh, epidemiological control and surveillance, all these activities play a really important role in the state building process of China before and after 1949. And there are just like multiple examples. And look at that, looking at this today, where we have this interesting situation uh, where zero COVID policy, which is uh, mainly based on a very stringent um, surveillance program enabled also by digital tools versus at the same time, uh, there are still gaps in vaccination uh, that uh, the Chinese government is still trying to address. Uh, what can we say about the role of these different programs in terms of how they are contributing to the state building process of China that is ongoing? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, it's interesting to question that term state building, right? And maybe think about the difference between state building and state maintaining, even though it's a bit less catchy. Um, but to think about the situation in the 1950s and 60s, for example, which is what part of my book looks at, um, it's quite a different situation in many ways, I think, to the case today. And if you think about vaccination, mass vaccination in the 1950s and 60s as a response to the question, how to protect the most people from the deadliest diseases, then mass immunization makes sense as an intervention that's highly effective. It ties in in all kinds of ways to processes of legitimation of the state uh, in ways that are really important, I think, in the 1950s and 60s. And I think it's a very different situation when you're looking at a state that is not necessarily trying to construct legitimacy uh, so much as show that it continues to hold legitimacy of one kind or another. Um, and so I think if you go back to that question, how to protect the most number of people against the deadliest diseases, then maybe today, zero COVID was the way uh, to immediately protect the most number of people from the worst outcome. And so the question then is whether zero COVID retains that function in a world with increasing access to vaccines that are increasingly clearly effective in controlling the worst outcomes, um, but also a world that is home to all kinds of newly emerging variants. And so I genuinely don't necessarily know the answer to that question. Um, but I think. If you think about it from that perspective, maybe to me, it's kind of interesting and perhaps understandable that, yeah, zero COVID is playing a function um, that mass immunization doesn't make sense uh, to hold at this moment in time when it comes to demonstrating things about the state's capacity to protect the health of its population. Uh, because that is the rhetoric that 
I saw in looking at sources from the 1950s and 60s, that it was about the state maintaining the health of the people. Um, and so there's a way in which mass vaccination is a great means to that end. But there are other means um, to that end that we're seeing in use today. Um, uh, in that case, given that actually um, the, that there is a constant function in uh, the Chinese government actively looking at what is the best way to protect uh, the citizens' health when they consider what sort of uh, measures to use. Um, if we flip the question around, mass, of, mass vaccination as well as uh, disease surveillance, all these programs also have an impact on the lives of citizens. And in your book, you also talked about how vaccination has come to be a really important part of what it means to be a Chinese citizen um, in the um, earlier times. So what, what, what about now, um, after COVID-19, what has become the defining experience of the Chinese citizens in this case? So, I mean, I think that for starters, there's a question of whether or not we're really in the after COVID-19 phase uh, of this pandemic. Um, certainly, I think if you look at collective experiences that are distinctive, then of course, the experience of lockdowns, the experience of lining up to get tested uh, repetitively, those things are things that people have written about, have spoken about, have discussed collectively. And also, I think getting vaccinated against COVID-19 in a variety of ways, those are collective experiences that I think are part of epidemic response. To what extent they're tied into ideas of citizenship, though, is, I think, a bit less clear. Um, and I'm not necessarily entirely convinced at this point that we see that kind of identity formation. I mean, it's interesting to think about this kind of cross-nationally, cross-culturally. Uh, In the UK, there were a lot of efforts to kind of build national identity around the idea of experiencing lockdowns together. Right. And I'm thinking of things like how every Thursday one was supposed to stand on one's doorstep and applaud the NHS, um, the National Health Service. And that kind of identity formation, I think, is successful or not successful um, to very varying degrees. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit hesitant right now to say, well, yes, the experience of, you know, going through isolation um, forged national identity in clear ways. I think we really have to let time tell whether or not that um, is going to be the case or not. Yeah. Uh, this is really fascinating because the interplay between state maintenance and citizenship building or uh, which other term we should use to describe it uh, is quite fundamental to build to the establishment of trust between yes. government and the populace. And um, in a more specific way, doctors and patients in the Chinese society as well. And the conversation so far, you have mm -hmm. given us a really complex picture of how that process is playing out with zero COVID vaccination campaign and all that happening. What mm -hmm. are the major implications you would draw in terms of the trust between um, Chinese government and its citizens at the moment? Um, I'm really interested to, to learn about that also because um, this has also policy implication in terms of how, how do we build that up as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting to think about the different kinds of trusts that are involved in uh, any 
moment of immunization and the act of immunization, but also the, the process on a broader level. There's trust by people getting vaccinated that the person who's giving them a shot knows what they're doing. So there's a level of what we might call trust in the educational system. There's trust that they are in a system that is designed to protect you from disease. So trust in the medical or public health system. Um, there's also trust on the part of the person giving the vaccine um, that the people that they're vaccinating are going to be coming back for the second shots, uh, that they're going to be con complying with the procedures for immunization that scientists identify. And all of those networks of trust, I think, they do add up to a powerful state-society relationship if they function well. But I think there are, there is a lot of work to be done in actually shoring up those uh, networks of trust. And I think that's why things like vaccine hesitancy are interesting to look at. To me, the really fascinating part of all of this dynamic is the way in which um, the Chinese state has been very reluctant to move to a coercive model of vaccination. And to me, that's something that I've seen in sources going back to the early PRC, um, this effort to really avoid coercion and focus instead on persuasion uh, when it comes to vaccination. Uh, and you see that today with all kinds of incentivizations that are being promoted at the moment, particularly to get the elderly, that key vulnerable population I mentioned, uh, vaccinated. Um, you know, I've been reading reports about how in some places, uh, insurance schemes are being offered to people over 60 getting vaccinated. So the schemes say that, you know, if you get sick because of the vaccine, you'll get a payout of um, of a certain amount of, of uh, renminbi. In other places, you're getting food. If you, I think there was one report, which I'm a bit skeptical of, that uh, was noting that I think in, in Hainan province somewhere, you got a free chicken if you got vaccinated. Um, which I really, I really love the image of that. Um, but in many cases, there is this focus on the carrot rather than the stick, if that makes any sense. Um, and I think that is one way to build trust. What's wrong with the stick? We got the stick in lots of other contexts yeah. where the, you know, party state wants to do things, right? This seems yeah. kind of important. Yeah. So there are vaccine mandates that are starting to be rolled out in places like Beijing, right, where in order to go to a public place, you do have to have evidence of vaccination. And I wouldn't be surprised to see more examples like that that happen on local and regional levels. I don't necessarily know that there's going to be a huge, widely publicized national campaign, though, in the same way um, that we might expect uh, for all kinds of different reasons. Um, and I think most of those reasons have to do with the liability associated with moving away from zero COVID at this point in time. So I can see that stick coming out um, in local areas and cities, um, but maybe not at the national scale at a totally coordinated level, if that makes any sense. Are there historical examples where you've had more stick relative to carrot? Um... What, what what else do you think is driving this hesitancy? So the earliest vaccination policies in the PRC did include clauses mandating vaccination. So if you look at early laws uh, of smallpox vaccination in the early 1950s, then you see stipulations in those laws saying 
vaccinators can use force if necessary. Um, so you do kind of see that baked in, but at the same time, looking at reports from that period from those campaigns, again, you see an effort to persuade people to get vaccinated rather than compel them. Now, in a situation where the law stipulates that it's possible to use force, is the threat of that force ever absent from an act of vaccination against smallpox in 1952? I think that's a pretty open question. But that's, you know, in the past. I think thinking, staying in the present and thinking about the risks and advantages associated with moving to large-scale vaccine mandates for the current state, I could see we're setting up a big, flashy, universal vaccine drive has two issues. One has to do with suggesting that zero COVID has somehow failed or is in need of uh, change. And the other has to do with the efficacy of domestic vaccines. Again, it goes back to that question of which vaccine do you use? If you stick with the current uh, inactivated uh, vaccines that have been domestically produced in China, then that is maybe going to have some questions associated with it, questions of, of efficacy. Basically, if you are vaccinating the entire population, that's a process that takes time, uh, that takes resources away from maintaining the zero COVID policy, which has been uh, part of a triumphalist narrative on the part of the state. Um, and so it's not clear that the payoff was necessarily um, at this point in time uh, going to be worth it. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's still such a puzzle to me because like, yes, th those that seems to be like a halfway decent list, which like if you weren't suffering like negative GDP growth for multiple years, you might be like, yeah, OK, all right, well, we'll take the the like on one level, like slightly more comfortable path. And yeah, maybe there's some hesitancy about like doing co coercive stuff for like your Han Chinese grandmother as opposed to your, you know, um, your uh, your Xiaoxu Minzu, who you're like totally fine bullying and have been doing for um for decades right but yeah. still i mean it's it's it, 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 it's just it just still really mind-boggling to me um how much like self-inflicted pain there has been sort of socially and economically and and even on sort of like confidence in government um and sort of the China, the, the Chinese government's ability to hand to handle things um, uh, because uh, you haven't had a mass, uh, you know, you haven't let in the foreign, uh, you know, the, the mRNA vaccines, you haven't done the mass mandate. All the questions get like amplified dramatically when you're sitting in your room in Shanghai in, you know, spring of 2022 and like everyone else on the planet in a developed country is like not so stressed about this thing anymore. I think that's why I'm very curious to see how how long the zero COVID policy continues um, and perhaps how long past November the zero policy, the zero COVID policy continues. But, yeah, I mean, I think there, that's the thing is that there are risks associated with continuing the zero COVID strategy that I think are going to become more and more significant as time goes on. I mean, there's one other thing I'll say, um, maybe, and that's just that, you know, there are questions of optics around moving to a different vaccine, perhaps, but there are also questions of optics around the process of implementing immunization as a means of exiting the zero COVID um, strategy. We know, as I said, that the vaccines are 
wonderful. They're not perfect. You do still um, find yourself vulnerable to infection after vaccination, even with mRNA vaccines. So if you're moving to a model where people are moving more freely through society and depending on vaccines to address the, the risk, you're still going to have people dying. You're yep. still going to have people getting hospitalized, especially older people. And so at what point do you take that risk? At what point do you accept some level of death and therefore show a policy reversal? And I think the calculus hasn't shifted yet, but that doesn't mean it won't in the future. So what's the what's the like the number if you multiply out Hong Kong to mainland? And then what's the number if you like, OK, everyone gets vaccinated, but you're still having, you know, like the tail, the tail ends of um, people, uh, people dying from from uh, from just COVID running free. Has has anyone done that little multiplication exercise yet? I certainly haven't. Um, okay. I'm not sure that I've seen those estimates yet or those that speculation, but yeah. it would be Hon quite interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, because Hong Kong, it's like it's like it's like 10, 20 million, something like that. I, yeah. I, I remember. And then, OK, say you get everyone in China on, uh, you know, with with three doses and a, like an Omicron uh, uh, targeted mRNA vaccine. I mean, you're still talk you're still probably talking at in tens of thousands. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. And that alongside of like the entire country getting sick for a few days, um, which is, you know, a very, which is going to be very kind of directly tied back to like, oh yeah, I'm sitting in my bed with like a fever of, you know, 41, like not having a great time. And like, the reason why is because the government decided to like stop caring uh, whether or not the vaccine was going to be floated, yeah. uh, you know, float through society. So, you know, it's not a, these are hard decisions, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the it, it's interesting, like, like where you, like, in what way you want to chirku. Um, like, are you are you cool, like, you know, like buttoning down the hatches and like shutting down your economy? Or are you fine kind of sacrificing, uh, you know, uh, a, a not insignificant number of your people to sort of not let the uh, not let the economy shut down? And my um, uh, my bias pre 20 pre 2020 would actually have been the former of being less worried about um, about death. Uh, than um, uh, than sort of like uh, all the all the sort of national power side effects that come from um, that come from shutting down your country, you know, on an ongoing basis for um, uh, for yeah. uh, years at a time. Yeah, it's not an easy kind of calculus to make, and I think there, like I say, if you look at the decisions that were made kind of at the time in the moment um, of January 2020, or even March and April 2020. Those are all extremely rational decisions. Um, I think, though, over time, as various narratives started to emerge of technological triumphalism in Europe and North America around the idea of vaccines saving everything and allowing us to get back to totally normal state of play um, versus things being different in China some, somehow, that kind of led to narratives of global competition um, and exceptionalism that I think have ultimately maybe been less helpful. Yeah, I might um, throw a question not not only to Mary, but also to you, Jordan. I, I think Mary is raising a really interesting point, as in 
tech policy at, at some point became like a pivot in the narrative, um, shifting countries' attention in a way, attention away from simply the, the equation of protecting the health of the citizens. Uh, now they're also looking at this kind of like tech competition kind of uh, dimension as well. I just wonder in, in that sense, how how are we going to look at the intersection of um, this sort of like evolving tech competition with um, China's zero COVID uh, policy from from here? It's not a not not a very clear question. Yeah. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this one back to Mary actually because you know in your book China seemed okay taking foreign vaccines. <laughs> like there were plenty of times where they're like, yeah, sure, WHO. Like, what do you guys think? Um, so. Yeah, maybe maybe before I answer that, like what how is it different back in the day? Um, sort of like learning from Western um medicine and and Western medical technology. If you look at the longer history of a vaccine development in China, then the strategy and the the general strategy in the mid-20th century depended on this perception of constant scarcity and need, right? So we need as many vaccines as we can possibly get into Chinese arms as quickly as possible. And of course, that really intensified during the Second Sino-Japanese War, uh, the sense that wherever the vaccines come from, we just need to get them and get them distributed. And so I think you, of course, see openness to uh, acceptance of foreign vaccines, particularly, as I said, during World War II. Um, there's actually a huge uh, project on the part of the League of Nations in 1938 um, to get millions of cholera vaccines uh, to China and uh, to distribute and to distribute them in in China, but that said, I mean one of the really interesting things is also the emphasis uh, that can be seen on developing domestic capacities to produce vaccines. And that's often with uh, Western trained scientists at the helm. So somebody who features in my book is uh, a bacteriologist named Tang Fei Fan, um, who trained at Harvard, who worked in London with Henry Dale, the, the Nobel laureate. Um, and who was very concerned with helping China develop the capacity to make its own smallpox vaccines, its own cholera typhoid vaccines. That said, it was a huge challenge. And so, of course, China became embedded in global networks of immunological production um, as a result of attempting to meet that challenge. Um, and so that's really what the book kind of tells the story of in many ways. Um, but I think it speaks to the ways in which China and Chinese actors uh, played pretty significant roles in international and global health, as well as receiving aid. They were also important participants in providing spaces of experiments, uh, but also participating as researchers, as physicians in networks of medical research and care. You also mentioned previously uh, that um, it the, the Chinese scientists and experts and public health professionals, um, they, they were feeling slightly betrayed by uh, the international community. And then at the same time, from your book, I read about this whole process of how the Chinese immunization program actually gave rise to uh, eventually the whole push on strengthening primary healthcare as well as, mm. as other Chinese inventions, such as the uh, Barefoot Doctors. And I uh, was really heartened to read that, uh, understanding that bit of history. Um, Looking at now the relationship between China and international global health actors, it's a dynamic and evolving one. Sometimes it's a bit tense, sometimes uh, much more collaborative. 
um, how do you see the space of collaboration in the age of um, the current situation regarding the Chinese government still trying to find a balance between zero COVID and mass uh, vaccination? Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, it's worth noting the ways in which I, for one, think that zero COVID and mass vaccination are totally compatible. And, you know, um, it's hopefully um, there's not, you know, a sense of, of either or with those uh, strategies. But I think it's been really fascinating to see the range of engagements with Chinese researchers and caregivers over the past several years. We've seen medical expertise play a host of different roles in international global discourses on COVID, uh, ranging from uh, the whistleblowers early on, people like Li Wenliang, who became kind of international figures, um, to the role of researchers uh, more generally in participating in international research. So I'm thinking about how in January 2020, a consortium of researchers led by Zhang Yujin in Shanghai actually released a draft genome of SARS-CoV-2 free to access. Um, and that was quite early on. That was done um, in the spirit of international collaboration, of learning as much as possible about the virus and the disease that it caused. At the same time, you have all of these controversies swirling around uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the work of Shi Zhengli there on um, bat-borne coronaviruses. And so I think there's it's been a polarizing time for researchers in a lot of ways, a very difficult and dangerous and fraught time, I think. Um, in part because transnational connections between Chinese researchers and other institutes and groups have come under scrutiny. Um, but it's also a period of possible potential in, in a lot of different ways. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's an evolving question. I'm curious to see what happens over the next few months and years. Mary, how does uh, traditional Chinese medicine play into all of this? So... Again, with the caveat that I am not a virologist, nor am I a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine or TCM, uh, which I think is important to say. It has been quite interesting to see the ways in which traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, uh, has played a role in some of these discourses around COVID. So one thing that was really striking for me sitting in the UK during all of this pandemic outbreak was that some of the earliest materials that came across my desk relating to COVID were actually protocols for how to treat COVID using TCM um, that were being circulated and published and distributed widely. And I thought that was really fascinating. I haven't, I'll admit, I haven't had time to look at them in close detail and drill down into them. But one of the things that has come out of um, looking you, at- you haven't, you haven't brewed up the tea, Mary? I cannot say I brewed up the tea. I mean- Maybe when I had COVID a couple of months ago, I, I could have gone down that route, but the brain fog hit and I was totally useless. I have to, I have to yeah. say, I have to yeah, say. Yeah, your, your elderflower and rhino horn were not, um, uh, not handy, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I was not getting a hold of those. Um, but I mean, I think one issue that it raised or that it spoke to um, had to do with the question of TCM as an approach to medicine that can deal with acute as well as chronic disease. So one of the things that you look at if you examine the history of traditional Chinese medicine over the 20th century is the evolution in a lot of public discourses towards treating TCM as something that's really good for chronic, for chronic illnesses. 
So Western medicine might be great if you've got a broken arm and you have some acute problem that needs emergency treatments, but for longer term illnesses for chronic pain or other kinds of diseases, uh, TCM and its methods, whether that's herbal medicine, acupuncture, moxibustion, um, that can be a more viable, more useful um, and effective means of treatment. Um, and yet one of the things that I think um, has been really interesting to see with um, actually the first uh, SARS epidemic in 2003, SARS-CoV-1, is that that was a moment where practitioners of Chinese medicine reasserted the value of Chinese medicine for treating acute as well as chronic illnesses with SARS. And so you see the release of protocols at that point for uh, treating COVID-19. Um, and so I think that probably provided the basis and the foundation and the model for protocols that have emerged to use TCM to treat COVID-19 today. It seems to me like, I mean, this is from my two hours of Googling, like chronic pain and seems to be like the one thing that, you know, acupuncture and whatnot is best at. And then very quickly, you sort of start delving into the, you know, crazy land of like curing cancer and, and, and whatnot. And, and, and it's interesting and it's almost a little sad, I think, that like it would be less sad if it was all BS. Um, but the fact that there are, you know, corners of this um, universe, which actually are useful um, and to kind of, you know, immediately have the Chinese government like putting putting up like like an official recipe for like COVID cures, um, you know, I, I think turns people off who actually could potentially be helped by stuff like this, um, you know, in the in the sort of more narrow uh, spheres where um, where TCM has, you know, there have actually been real studies that have shown it's useful as opposed to um, as opposed to stuff like this, which is which is not going to save you in the end. Yeah. And I mean, one of the really fascinating questions in the field of studying TCM is the question of how you evaluate it. And this is something that I generally try not to you know, to, to Walton, because I don't feel like I have that particular expertise. Again, I'm not a practitioner, but many people who study the history of medicine in China, as you might expect, are practitioners of TCM. Um, and so there have been some really interesting debates in the field around, like, can you use a randomized controlled clinical trial to evaluate drugs that were designed for one individual um, in a totally different cosmology? Yeah. Um, and those are really interesting philosophical questions to yeah. consider if you're a philosopher. Yeah, because we all because we all live in different cosmologies. Um, you know, I mean, like the studies that the studies that I like are like the acupuncture ones where they like don't actually puncture you um, like that. I, I kind of buy that. Um, but yeah, once you're once you're being in like, OK, well, then you just I, I feel like you kind of get very quickly into the into the placebo stuff where like, yeah, if I believe that like my chi matters sure, like chi infused medicine is going to uh, work more powerful on me than it would uh, than it would a skeptic. Um, but uh, oh, I hadn't thought of that. That makes a lot of sense, Mary, that all your colleagues are, you know, this is like a, this is their weekend activity. Yeah. I mean, I also do have a colleague uh, here in history and philosophy of science at Cambridge, uh, Jacob Stegenga. He's recently published a book called Medical Nihilism, uh, which <laughs> investigates the ways in which uh, much of what we think of as medicine that works, perhaps doesn't actually. So I really recommend his book. Um, it's pretty fantastic. Um, it's not about Chinese medicine at all, as far as I know, but. Um... Uh, very, very interesting uh, discussion about TCM because that also 
um, ties in with one of the uh, reflections you you have in your book, Barry, and it's a very beautiful sentence. So I did, I, I want to read it out loud. Within discourses of biopolitics, immunity has played a special role because it provides a metaphor for distinctions between self and other. And throughout today's discussion, I think we've come across a lot of different versions of self and other, um, not simply um, about you know the COVID disease and uh, how our body responds to it. There's the dimensions about China and um, other countries, especially quote unquote the West. There's um, also the Chinese kind of um, um, philosophy about medicine, the traditional Chinese medicine versus the Western medicine. There's the Chinese vaccines and the foreign vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is there a way that we can uh, reflect on historical lessons and think about how we can cut across and bridge the self and other narrative and maybe find ways to tone it down? Because I, I kind of think that in order to find a way forward, there needs to be a bit of a middle ground, right? Yeah, there are. And I think that particular sentence um, really comes out of reading the scholarship uh, on immunity, immunology, um, thinking about kind of what that means to protect yourself against disease, but also protect your population, your community, whatever community might mean um, against disease, against foreign invasion by, in this case, a virus. And I feel as though, I mean, in some ways, I think what you're asking maybe um, connects to bigger wrapping up questions about policy implications um, going forward. But to me, if we're talking about kind of getting through, cutting through these these issues of these distinctions between self and other, whether the self and the other are Chinese and foreign um, or Shanghainese and non-Shanghainese or, um, you know, my village versus the rest of the world, then I think it's really important to get away from narratives of difference that make Ex exceptions or spectacles out of one particular country's approach to COVID management. Um, so I think a lot of the rhetoric of, you know, competition um, that I've seen emerge around different national approaches to epidemic management and COVID-19 has ultimately been kind of harmful. And I mean, I think you see this play out not just with respect to China and the discourse on China's zero COVID policy being different from most other nations. But you also see it in Europe with all of the rhetoric around Sweden's uh, approach to, which was anti-lockdown. Um, there was a lot of ink spilled over all of these questions of who's managing the pandemic better. And I think ultimately what we actually need is global coordination on policies to control the epidemic when it's acute. Um, and to manage the flow of goods and people and uh, ideas that isn't going to lead to the creation of a new variant and worse diseases spreading around the world. Um, you know, there needs to be global cooperation that maximizes a variety of coordinated epidemic control strategies in a sensible way. Um, and of course, you're never going to get total agreement on what is the right approach to managing an epidemic in any one given place. But some degree of global coordination around something like, for example, global vaccine distribution, um, I think is pretty important to at least try um, to attain. Mary, can you lead us out with a song? Is there like a 
was there like some vaccine jingle in the fifties or something that we can find and, uh, and use as our outro music? Oh boy. Well, I mean, I think that there, I have come across songs encouraging people to get, for example, the BCG vaccine against tuberculosis, but I've never found recordings of them. Um, so <laughs> I'd love for there to be recordings of, I think it was a song for school children. Um, you know, it was, I found it at a public health journal. I think the idea was that um, teachers would read it and then and then get their kids to 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 do it. Um, alas, I've never found reporting, so that will have to to wait for some future reenactment. Marion Henry, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Mary. Hey, it's Callan, China Talks editor. We weren't able to find Mary's TV song, but don't worry. Jackie Chan and friends are here to save the day again, this time in Love Will Prevail, a February 2020 song from some of China's biggest stars dedicated to epidemic workers. Because everyone knows there's nothing like millionaires singing to help exhausted, underpaid hospital staff get through their 16-hour shifts. Show me.
风雨中，邻居。